Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host, and I'm also the host of the MedTech Leaders Community. We have over 80 members from 18 countries. If you're interested in learning about this community, go to medtechleaders.net. It's that easy. Today, I am honored to have as our guest, Bertalan Meshko, MD, PhD, the medical futurist. For years, Bertalan and his team of futurists have been helping medical associations, patients, governments, and industry understand the future of medicine, in particular in the areas of digital medicine. In this episode, Bertalan and I talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the world in general and the medtech industry in particular in 2021 and 2022. There is hope and concern in what we discuss. Now, on a humorous note, because Bertalan is a Mandalorian fan, just like I am, I am changing the musical introduction clip. This is a Mandalorian-inspired clip called The Bounty Hunter. See you on the other side with Bertalan. Bertalan, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Ted, for having me. I'm looking forward to this. That's excellent. And I was just teasing you, so I'll just admit this to the audience that I just screwed up when I started the podcast. And Bertalan and I were talking about his interest in The Mandalorian, which I, my wife and I love that show. And in one of Bertalan's uh, recent videos, he was wearing that shirt. Um, and my wife and I both have shirts for Christmas, so... Yes. And I got a helmet from my wife. That's right. A Mandalorian you said... helmet. <laughs> right. I wear it proudly every evening. No, I'm just kidding here. <laughs> it's creepy and fantastic at the same time. I love those <laughs> t-shirts, by the way. Those t-shirts with science fiction-like themes help me describe my feelings for the day. So it matters which t-shirt I'm wearing for recording a new video. But ah. for interviews, I kind of dress up. Okay. Well, I'll be very attentive to that in the future. Okay, excellent. Matter. Excellent. So tell us about who you are a little bit and your role at the Medical Futurist. Of course. Um, by training, I'm a medical doctor. And as my childhood dream was to become a, a researcher focusing on genomics, I did my PhD in clinical genomics. But then when I, when I reached my childhood dream, and I should have been very happy, I felt that something was missing for my life. And after a few months, I found out that that was my geek self. I've been a geek all my life. I love gadgets. I live with gadgets. I think I will have a robot dog before I have a real dog. So I, I have these issues in my mind about using technologies. And there was no profession where I could combine my researcher self, my doctor self, and my geek self. So I kept on looking. I went to a course um, at NASA, uh, the Future Med course. And then I started realizing that as there is no profession like that still, Either I design a new profession, I invent something new, or I will have to put myself in a box where I don't belong. So that's how I, I came up with the brand, The Medical Futurist. And it's, it has always been um, a, a research field 
somewhere between the intersection or at the intersection between life sciences, healthcare, medicine, and futuristic studies. So I started learning more and more, doing courses. I did a course at Harvard Extension School to, to become a real professional futurist, focusing on futuristic studies from the research perspective. And in the meantime, I started building a team around myself. So at the Medical Futurist, we have 12 dedicated people, amazing experts from different fields. And what we do is that we try to help understand what's going on in healthcare from the technological perspective. So what digital health means, what we can do with artificial intelligence, why all these changes represent a cultural transformation in healthcare and a technological one. And we publish reviews, analysis, gadget reviews, articles, eBooks, executive summaries, videos, anything we can produce to help understand what's going on. We help governments, individual patients, physicians, we work with medical associations in the US, in Canada, and so on. And at the same time, I launched the Medical Futurist Institute, where we do the same things, but in peer-reviewed research. So we publish studies, original research, uh, opinion type, perspective type articles in, in high-level medical journals, because we want to show that the vision that we share the Medical Futurist uh, is also the vision that, that we find through research and, and through our studies. And of course, having a background in genomics, that would be a perfect introduction, in a sense, into the future, right? One of the most exciting fields still. Yeah. We, been, when the Human Genome Project was completed about 20 years ago, everyone felt that genomics is the big thing now. So obviously, many people like me went into genomics. But then we thought that by now, we would be able to do miracles with genomic data. We would just sequence someone's genome, and we would be able to tell that person about all the medical conditions they would have a risk for, what medications they would have a side effect for, and so on. And still, we, we are not really there. So it's one of the most exciting yet maybe most um, undervalued fields. Yes, yes. And then, so you probably had to, you know, work a little bit in your profession as you were gaining all these skills before you could really make uh, the medical futurist a, a full-time uh, profession? Forecasting and foresight, day by night, literally. My wife can tell you that. Uh -huh. Forecasting is a key skill for a futurist. And many people daydream and they think like, well, they sort of think like the future. So, so they do foresight, but it's a different part of science to learn the skills related to forecasting and foresight. And what I found to be the far the most useful was not about reading books or doing university courses, but joining a, a community project called Good, the Good Judgment Project. You can find that on the gjp.org or gjpopen.org. It's a free, wonderful community of people who just want to do uh, forecasting. We get questions from the, the site administrators about geopolitical events, um, sport events, cultural events, hundreds of questions, really. And our job is to, is to make predictions, and we do it together. So we learn from each other. We have professional futurists like myself. We have retired teachers from Germany. We have students who love forecasting. And actually, this group uh, is better at forecasting the outcomes of geopolitical events and have been better at that than the CIA's expert team. I'm not bragging here. That's the fact. So crowdsourcing really works when you when you put together people who are really passionate about doing something together. And in this case, it's forecasting. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm going to have to go there. Please. Because I do find this fascinating. A good friend of mine at Temple University, she's a professor there. 
she is also a, a futurist, but she tends to focus on trends and a little bit more in uh, like consumer goods, fashion, that kind of thing. Um, and then I was started to read this book, uh, All the Pieces Are Talking. I forget the lady that wrote that, um, but I'm trying to understand it as well. I'm I'm definitely super amateur. This is so, a, if you don't mind, just one more thing about this because yeah. people have a very strange idea about the job futurists do. Uh, so those futurists, most of the futurists you see on on TV and in social media, who just come up with like this thing or AI, a development level of AI would happen this or that year. This is simply not helpful. This is just you know, blind predictions. Uh, but what futurists really do is what archaeologists do, but in the opposite direction. So okay. everyone knows what archaeologists do. They they find fossils, they find data, they try to create visions about the past based on every evidence and data they can find. We do the same, but in the opposite direction. I look at trends, I look at analysis and data, I create visions, and then I talk to people about on those specific fields about those visions, and then we try to make sure that those visions are structured and evidenced enough that that we can choose them as being the the goal to reach. So we we choose desired visions about the future of healthcare at the medical futures, and then we try to find out well what's missing between the practicability of today and that desired vision, and what we have to do now to make sure that we arrive to that destination and not a different one. Okay. Okay. Now today when we're talking. We're not talking, I guess, truly way out in the future uh, because, like most businessmen, we're really concerned about what we would call near term, what, 2021, 2022. But um, let me bring up a slide. Let me share a slide here to just sort of talk about you know where we are at in, in terms of um, the med tech industry. And you know, in in 2020, we had a tough year, as you can imagine, because a lot of our traditional ways of marketing and selling were just cut off. And going into 2021, it doesn't change very much. You know, our, our access to healthcare professionals is limited, which means like field sales forces, we can't go knocking on doors. Um, the field sales forces still lack a lot of the tools, you know, to sell virtually and or prospect virtually. Uh, our trade shows were lost. And so virtual trade shows are probably going to stay virtual, at least for the first half, if not the first three quarters of this year. And then also virtual trade shows were really successful in some ways because more people could attend them, but they were really unsuccessful and they were terrible for industry. So the funding for a trade show really went down. And so um, they've been very disappointing for industry, but the doctors really liked them, you know, because they could you know, attend a trade show at the break. They could walk the dog or they could t see a patient or something. And then uh, hospitals, clinics, um, practices have been damaged financially by this uh, pandemic this last year, which means there's less money to spend on med tech. And then, um, you know, small to medium-sized med tech companies are—we're just traditionally terrible at uh, marketing. They're, we're typically sales and technology-driven, as opposed to being marketing-driven. Technology, of course, is great because it helps you invent something, but but then when it comes to actually working in the marketplace, um, they tend to lean on sales. And in this current environment, 
that hasn't worked. So that's how I define define the 2020, 2021 environment that we're working. I don't know if you have a comment on that. Well, at the core part of my job as leading the medical futurist is being a keynote speaker. Uh-huh. So last March, in about the span of two weeks, uh, about 50 of my keynotes got canceled. Normally, wow. I would throw around the word, giving speeches on stages. I, I work so much on every speech to, to make them different and customized. And then literally everything changed in the span of two weeks. All these, most of these events have shifted to the virtual space. And now I'm, I had to buy a new studio. We have several rooms for recording videos, for streaming live Q&As, for streaming keynotes, and so on. Um, I think logistically, it's a nightmare. Um, traveling to Japan and the US and then back to Europe was much easier than <laughs> organizing three events in those countries from the studio. It's a logistical nightmare. So wow. yes, I talk about it for, but you don't want to, do, to dive into that. Uh, so I, I perfectly understand uh, the, all the doubts, the, the concerns that people have who have been event managers and also those who have been attendees before. Everything is different. Nothing works the same way as before. It takes time to get adjusted. And I think by, let's be optimistic, by the time we all get adjusted to this new norm, we go back to a hybrid model, like you mentioned, there will be in-person keynote events. I have zero doubts about that, but I also, I'm also sure that there will be virtual events because in some formats, it's simply more efficient than, than get, gathering people around the table just to meet for two hours and then leave. But for big events like the CES event, uh, these big trade shows, uh, there is no other way than doing this in person. Right, right, right. Well, it's interesting, your perspective as being a, a very sought-after speaker. Yeah. So, well, it'd be good for industry, too, because right now it's it's really killing industry because trade shows were a big source of leads and um, interaction with key, key opinion leaders and networking and so on. And, and you've, you know, we've lost all that. So if we, if we move on into, let's go to my next slide. I'll share that uh, with everybody. Okay. I'm signed up to um, get notified when I can get a vaccine. You know, the vaccines are, are uh, really wonderful. Uh, obviously, they're going to be society-saving, life-saving, and so on and so forth. And they should get us back, you know, to at least something like a near normal. But what don't, what don't we know, you know, in terms of like how long it takes to get it distributed to even in one country and then other countries because countries sort of lean on each other economically, right? So if it's really done well in the United States, but done poorly in, in Canada or Mexico, well, we still have a, a financial issue there and, and so on. And there's a, these other questions. Do they prevent people from carrying COVID and, and spreading the disease? You know, how long do they last? Are we going to get a COVID vaccine every year? Like I get my flu vaccine or will it be put together? And then we've got these other questions about herd, herd immunity and will they be effective against these variants? And I just saw Moderna came out with something this morning indicating they felt their vaccine was effective against some of these initial variants. And I, and I took a quote from you here. So I'm going to credit you with this quote. Came out of one of your articles. The country where the willingness to get vaccinated is greater wins. So how would you comment on some of these points? 
Well, one of the major things about being a futurist and doing a forecast is that you have to read everything of value to be able to make a forecast. Um, obviously, I'm not a public health expert, but I've, I had to read everything that's out there about all these issues and questions and the vaccinations from, the, from early 2020. First, I just want to claim and state it or say it out loud that getting a COVID vaccine in less than a year is a scientific miracle. It's an amazing breakthrough. We should celebrate it all together. Uh, when smallpox got eradicated in the 1980s, WHO made a big fuss about it, but you know people were happy. But but that that it couldn't even break, uh, couldn't even be one of the biggest news those years. Even though it's an amazing thing, and now in less than a year, companies uh, came together, they worked together, they shared data like never before, and now we have COVID vaccines. So just, let's just stop for two seconds and celebrate this scientific achievement, and then let's expect, let's see what we can expect from the next couple of months. Um, I had three scenarios laid out uh, last year about what might happen in 2021. Now, right now, we are in the second scenario, the optimistic one. The fairy tale was, of course, um, something ridiculous that it would yeah. end by early 2021. Yeah. But the optimistic scenario said that we could get in, in developed countries, we could get vaccinated by the end of the summer, early Q3. And then maybe by the end of this year, we might go back to a sort of normal. And that was the pessimistic ending of that scenario about going back to the new normal in 2023, 2024, because of new mutant viruses, um, reluctance to getting vaccinated, uh, supply chain issues, and so on. I'm not saying that we are not shifting towards the third scenario. We are not for now. But I think the battle of 2021 is between scientifically approved, peer-reviewed vaccines and misinformation shared on social media. That's Absolutely. It's ridiculous, you know, we are not fighting cancer right now. We are not fighting some new disease. We are fighting people sharing useless stuff and actually dangerous stuff, conspiracy theories around on social media. I had to do a video about COVID conspiracy theories because that's how many questions I've received from people around the world asking how they can put a 5G microchip, which I don't even understand technologically being a geek, into a vaccine, and uh, and when I asked back that you are so you are afraid of being tracked by a vaccine where they put a microchip into such a tiny biological material, and you are asking me that through a social media channel that literally knows everything about you, even what you say in front of your smartphone, it knows it about you, <laughs> but you are afraid of being tracked. So. This battle is going to be the biggest one this year. And, and addressing the questions that, that you, the great questions that you listed on the slide, it seems that uh, those countries where they want, where the government wants to really push mm, the, the idea of vaccination and could make some preparations well enough, those countries will win. I'm looking at Israel here, having, I checked this morning, 40% of their population have been vaccinated, 40%. Can you imagine that in about, one month, one and a half months together, about 65 million people have been vaccinated worldwide. Uh, more than 100 million have had COVID so far. So we are really far from being able to go back to anything that resembles the, the normal. And that's a plus thing that this new normal is going to be really different than, than we use, what we used to have before. If 
uh, I, I read a few studies recently that came out in quite high level journals about what could mean the end of the pandemic. And they never said that the end of the pandemic will be when everybody is vaccinated. But they said that the end of the pandemic means that the virus becomes endemic. It's, it becomes a part of the, the biome that we have in our lives. Like in the case of the Spanish flu, after about five to 10 years, it just became one of the strains of the, the flu strain that you get vaccinated against, I mean, in a positive scenario every year. The same fate awaits the coronavirus, but it will take time. But in the meantime, if most of us are vaccinated, we won't get a serious disease, we won't die because of it, we won't get into hospitals, we won't overwhelm hospitals. So those needing different kinds of treatments for different medical conditions cannot get access to care because we are overwhelming hospitals. So all these things will not happen if most of us are vaccinated. That's why we at the Medical Futurists made a pledge about a month ago that we will get vaccinated with any kind of vaccine approved by the FDA, the European Medicines Agency or the WHO. Simply because I want COVID to end. I also have doubts. I also have concerns about the new types of vaccines, but every study I found about those were peer-reviewed, were transparent, and I do believe in the facts and in the scientific data. I can transparently read about a, a vaccine type, and there is no complication for now. There might be in three to five years, and you might be a person who want, who want to wait until they find out, but it means then you will not get vaccinated for three to five years, and COVID will not go away for even a decade from now. So now we have decisions to make and choices to make. I want to choose vaccines which have peer-reviewed, transparent, published studies in the background. If a study doesn't have that, simply I can't believe the, 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 the facts, the figures that the companies behind them or the governments behind them want me to believe in. I, I want to see peer-reviewed studies. And for many vaccines, we see those peer-reviewed studies. So that's why herd immunity is at least for months, if not a year, is off the picture. But if we get vaccinated, the more the better, then we won't overwhelm healthcare and we can go back to a sort of normal. And when we go back to your quote about the country that has the greatest willingness of its population to be vaccinated wins, then it seems to me like industry, especially uh, the life sciences industry, pharma, med technology, biotechnology, um, we have a huge interest in helping to spread this message that getting vaccinated is important. Otherwise, not even us can go back to doing our jobs normally. We right. cannot go to trade shows. I cannot go on stages. Uh, we can go to the offices. I have to get, uh, it's um, 6 p.m. soon here in my country. Before 8 p.m., I have to leave the office and get back home because there's a curfew. So if we don't get vaccinated, it's just not going to happen, literally. You might want to stay at home, but even if like 60% of us in a country get vaccinated and 40% won't, I'm not sure if that 40% would be able to go back to a sort of normal life. I'm not sure if how they can travel, how they can go back to an office, if they can go to a restaurant or go to the cinemas. I'm just not sure about that. So I understand that for many people, the concern is that I'm being pressurized and pushed to get the vaccine no matter what. Otherwise, they won't allow me to go back to a normal life. But we live in a society and we have to make decisions and choices together and now that's a choice that we have to make together, that we all want this to end, and, and it will only end if we can get vaccinated.
Well, I was reading one of your uh, uh, publications about uh, seven things that could really uh, happen here in the very near future or would be. And you talk about, um, I think one of them was um, like an embedded <clears throat> an embedded record in your passport or possibly some ID, which I, th- I think that will happen because an airline won't launch you on board its plane if you haven't been vaccinated and so on. And so, um, yeah, you're right. If if you don't get vaccinated, society is probably going to implement a number of restrictions and your life still won't be the same while everybody else is going about life. In Israel, they have a so-called green booklet that patients get after being vaccinated. Hmm. And their data also go into their national healthcare systems uh, database. So it's partially digital, but mostly it's a green booklet. In my country, there is going to be a plastic card that we can... Uh, take it take with us that that really um, describes that we have been vaccinated i've seen countries kind of experimenting with digital cards or including that information into your electronic um, identity card or passport maybe if it's possible technologically and i've seen the common pass application that the i think the international airline uh, association uh, has been um, sharing on social media that they want people to use this app because that app can communicate with a lot of governments and, and um, health ministries databases. So only the app can ensure that that that, that your information is, is right and you have been vaccinated. Thus, you can travel freely without even negative tests, which is not even as simple as it sounds, because even with a vaccination, you can still carry the virus. You can still infect others, even though there is a very low chance that that with the virus, you you would need uh, serious medical attention. You would not, as it seems, but you can still infect others. So even though I'm vaccinated, it doesn't mean that I should just go freely, not use my mask and not keep social distancing. That's why I'm saying that these measures will stay with us for a long time. Wow. So when you think about a vaccine, I think about the flu vaccine and I get a flu vaccine every year. Me too. You know, and so this may sound like a stupid question, especially from a med tech person, but why do I need a, a new flu vaccine every year? And might that be the same thing with, with COVID? Is, is it because we're responding to the changes in the flu or is it because uh, the vaccine just doesn't last that long? It, isn't, um, it doesn't have that, that kind of longevity. The, the purpose of the virus, even the flu virus, is to keep being alive. And if it infects a lot of people who can destroy the virus and create immunity against it, then it won't be able to infect the same people. So that virus will die. Therefore, in very plain terms, the purpose of the virus is to keep on upgrading itself, changing itself, mutating into new forms. So it might be able to infect new people. Therefore, it might be able to live on. That's why you need a new um, vaccine every year. That's why companies that have been producing flu vaccines for years are now able to create a, a new vaccine against the newest flu strain in about six to eight months, which is still incredible. I think the same fate awaits the coronavirus, that it will keep on changing and mutating. We've seen there are at least now three mutations, one from Brazil, one south from South Africa, and one from the UK. These strains can infect people in a much more efficient way because the, the virus uh, keeps on uh, trying to stay stay alive. For that, it means that we might need new vaccines every year. 
But also that's where the, the new type of mRNA vaccines come into the picture, that with the technology that, that they have been produced, it might allow for changing the vaccine in about one and a half months, which is again, uh, a scientific achievement and is simply incredible. And we might not be able to do the same with the traditional types of vaccines. That's why I've been advocating people for getting the, not, at least not being afraid of the mRNA type based vaccines only because they are new and we haven't seen anything like that. Actually, we have, even for the Zika virus, there had been experiments, plus in many cancers, uh, cancer uh, diseases, there have been experimental vaccines. There are patients who have received mRNA-based vaccines for dozens of times without any complications. So we know this technology quite well. We have been knowing this for more than a decade, but for doing this against uh, a flu-like uh, virus, is a new thing, but all the peer-reviewed studies are there, so I would take it as well. Okay, okay. Well, I'm hoping to get mine here in the next couple of months. It's, but it is amazing how disorganized we are here in the United States. I'm sure the same problem is, occurs, you know, in other countries as well. But I did see the article that you had that showed the uh, adoption rate and showed that Israel was leading the way. Very, very impressive. Well, it, it's an impressive culture in many, many respects. Um, if we move on, and so the next question, which we're sort of leaning into like right now, and you've already indicated a couple things, which is, will we ever get back to a pre-pandemic normal? Like in, in, I don't think so in 2021, but even 2022. And I'll bring up, so um, I'm going to leave it there with that question. What do you think about getting back to a normal? But then I'm going to bring up a slide with a few things. I, I want to make sure that you, you had a very specific question going back to the old normal, and that's, I'm sure, is not going to happen. This pandemic is taking too much time for us uh, not to change things um, significantly. The way we work at offices, um, the way we have to meet a physician for every minor, even every minor health issue, these are simply not sustainable. I'm afraid that the masks will stay with us, like in in Asia, in many parts of Asia, this has been a quite a common habit to wear yeah. masks in public spaces for you know decades now. I assume that something similar will happen to all of us at least for five to ten years from now on. Um, I assume that vaccination will be a primary issue in politics, in general discussions among people for quite a long time. I'm sure that no politician will be able to not to focus on healthcare in the next campaigns, because now all of us have seen what happens when healthcare is overwhelmed and cannot function properly. And we don't even see yet the, the long-term outcomes of the past one year or now, it's gonna be one and a half, two years. And by the, the outcomes, I mean the, that we will see the effects of the pandemic on patients who couldn't get access to care normally or traditionally because of COVID patients overwhelming hospitals worldwide. I'm sure that social distancing will stay with us and simply I, I, all these things fall into one big category, trust. Trust in a globalized free world where we can travel freely, where we can meet anyone and hug anyone. We have been in this, the lockdown, the curfews, in this state of mind. I'm sure it's not just me struggling with, with this pandemic, you know, mentally and cognitively. It's, it's for all, everybody, it's a struggle, even though if someone loses their job, Someone cannot get normal care about their medical condition. Someone just hates being at home for months. For all of us, it's a mental struggle. 
And if you if you stay in this mental mental struggle for so long, more than a year, it will take years until you can build upon that or build something new out of that. For, so for trust, I think it will take the 2020s to go back to a sort of new normal. There are positive aspects of this. I, I, I'm very afraid of saying out loud positive in, in the pandemics respect there is nothing positive. But if there is something positive about it is that digital health, the, the, the adoption of digital health has immensely accelerated. And we might have spared a decade of technological uh, developments here because otherwise patients couldn't have get couldn't get access to care if not through telemedical services if not through at home lab tests or home sensors i also have around myself but now we have to put the cultural transformation next to the technological revolution otherwise we will use gadgets to have a remote care with our professional but we won't be able to build relationships based on trust and that's the core essence of practicing medicine and I guess as, as a futurist, the, the other thing we've learned is how debilitating um, an unchecked virus can be when the world doesn't work together to to try to contain it. And this isn't going to be the last one, right? The risk is not bigger than before. So this risk has been there for decades. And there have been um, not pandemics, but viruses like this, MERS, SARS, but for them or with them, the, the rather unfortunate for patients who died, fortunate for millions of others, was the feature that the symptoms were very characteristic. So they could just isolate those regions and stop the, the spread of the virus. In this case, it couldn't happen because of the features, the characteristics of the virus. But I just want to make sure that the risk of having similar pandemics is not bigger than before, but the preparation of how, how prepared we can be for such a pandemic obviously is now a hundred times bigger than before. So if it happens in three years from now and we have to go under lockdowns and and we have to start working on new vaccinations, I'm pretty sure in, in days, if not weeks, all of this will happen and we will know what to do. I don't want it to happen again, but at least that's what we can get out of this pandemic. Well, let me uh, share another one of the slides that I'd um, prepared because we, we went into a little bit of this. Um, so like the, we're talking about concerns going forward to some degree. I don't know if you've heard anything, but have, have you heard anything about the damage done to the, fin, like the, the foundation, the financial foundation of healthcare worldwide? Well, not, not in this respect. I guess the question implies that the way healthcare is financed will change partially because of the pandemic. That change has had always been taking place before the pandemic, but now it got accelerated. And that's and that self-care that many patients have lost trust in the system because of not getting access to care. And they many of them tend to turn to uh, self-care-based technologies, self-care-based services, even remotely or through the access to advanced technologies because they believe that through that, at least, they would get access to care. Otherwise, through traditional methods, they might not. And do you have any ideas or thoughts about the concerns doctors or hospitals will be facing as they go into 2021 and 2022? I talk with so many of them. So uh, absolutely, or unfortunately, yes. <laughs> One of the biggest issues is, um, you know, I've been giving talks to medical associations, medical audiences for more than a decade. 
many times I felt some reluctance that they they see that digital technologies can be useful and, and many of their patients use them quite often, but they don't feel pressured to start using them unless there is a big reimbursement issue or something like a good motivation comes into the picture. And now all of a sudden they all have to use these, otherwise they cannot provide care for their patients. And of course, the vast majority of them don't know how because medical curriculums worldwide simply don't talk about using these technologies. And it's not part of the medical practice and the knowledge of running a medical practice of how to do this properly, how to still build a relationship with patients when I cannot even meet them in person. And I think communication skills would come handy here, but it's it's a long cultural process of learning these tricks and tips and a lot of physicians struggle with that and they have concerns whether it's even possible, theoretically, to build relationships with patients without meeting them in the first place. Because meeting them once and then keeping the communication through digital channels is something many of them accept. But doing everything remotely is, is a different animal. So that's one concern. The second one is being reimbursed for virtual visits. Um, they, I mean, many patients, many physicians have been using emails with patients, and of course, they are not reimbursed for that. But now, that's that, that's how they provide care through digital channels. And a lot of countries, even those that were against reimbursing virtual visits, now have to reimburse them because that's how they reimburse healthcare in general. So, in a way, and it's not about the concerns of physicians, but in a way, the um, the difference between in-person traditional care and virtual visits, remote care, I think the difference starts vanishing away because it's just providing care. Whether it's me talking to you in person and having a handshake together or doing the same through a video chat, I don't see the difference culturally. I saw a difference technologically, but culturally there shouldn't be a difference. I should still be able to build a relationship with you. So um, concerns about um, switching to technologies, concerns about reimbursement and concerns about privacy, that through these technologies, it's impossible to keep your privacy intact. In in-person in, in, in meetings, of course, they can do that. They only share information they want, but now it's physically impossible. So, and I just stop at three concerns, but I think what physicians have these days is mostly concerns. Well, you know, it's interesting in the next slide, we're going to, this is a great segue, I think, into the next slide, but you know, we, my, my wife is uh, a retired emergency room physician. So I, I definitely have some advantages there, but for very little money, we have a pulse oximeter. We have a blood pressure cuff, you know, stethoscope and stethoscopes can be digital now. So there's a lot of basic information you can pick up that can be transferred. In fact, um, I have uh, from time to time, I have some arrhythmia. So I'll, um, stop the share here for a second, but I am <clears throat> going through a week of this right now, which is my um, monitor that I've got on. Nothing serious. It's paroxysmal, I think is what my wife says. So, but I still have to get monitored every year or two, but it is really amazing, you know, what can be done. Um, and it's almost surprising that we didn't go there sooner, but I, I think it goes back to your issue that it's a it's a cultural thing within the provider community. Absolutely. It will take time, but if we do it properly now, then still we can save us about a decade or 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 about a decade of uh, technological cultural development. So 
and I'm, I know I always sound like an uh, overly optimistic person, I guess I am, but I'm saying this because now we can, we can implement these changes. Now we can help physicians learn how to build the same kinds of relationships through digital channels. We can help patients manage their expectations about using these channels. So now we can do stuff to make sure that we all get adjusted to this new norm and this new norm might be even better than the old one. And we can reach so many more people. You know, it's um, so I have to ask you, how do you pronounce this word? And what <laughs> I know it means big, but I've never seen this word before. Um, Me neither. Our editor in chief, Yurit Gusko, wrote that word. And I, I, when I first saw the first draft, I left a comment there saying that I'm not sure if that's a word. And she said <laughs> it's a word. So uh, it's a word. It, it means gigantic and gargantuan, something yes. like that. <laughs> anyway, I saw that in one of your articles, and I just thought that that's crazy. Okay, so what should we be looking for as you know, med tech companies? You know, one thing that's obvious to me is synergies with telemedicine platforms and technology. So, if you have a med tech technology, try to find a way <clears throat> that you can link into this telemedicine telemedicine ecosystem, so that you have some value in an area that is obviously going to be growing like crazy. Another would be to, you know, convert healthcare professional oriented technologies into personal self-monitoring or home tests. That's going on right now. But if you have a device that is made for a healthcare professional to deliver its usefulness, try to find a way that um, a person at their own, in their own home can deliver its usefulness. And then finally, you know, synergies with companies that are developing AI that need the input of, you know, some of this instrumentation. So those are just some things I came up with. And part of that is from looking at your article where you outlined seven things, you know, seven places we're going in terms of new technologies in 2021, 2022. Um, Looking at it, at all these changes from a medtech company's perspective, I think there is a general rule we can all keep in mind that everything that happens in digital health is pointing into one direction, making patients the point of care. That's the end of the line. That's the end of the story. That's the end of our mission. If patients worldwide all become the point of care, we at the medical futurist are done and we can look for a, a new mission <laughs> to fulfill. But by this, I mean that for 2000 years since Hippocrates, healthcare has always been about the experts in the ivory tower. That if you have a symptom and until then you have nothing to do, but then you can go there to the point of care and ask for their help. But when they leave that ivory tower, you are left alone. And I, I'm sure many patients know who are listening to this, what I'm talking about here. You meet a physician, even if you have a chronic condition, you might meet a medical professional for maybe a few hours every year. In the rest of the time, you are left alone with your hundreds of questions, lifestyle choices, you know, detailed insights about what you can do differently, your health and disease management in general. And it's a very frustrating feeling to have. What has been changing since the 21st century is that patients have started getting access to information through the internet, through solutions, through crowdsourcing, and through technologies through supply chains and companies producing those technologies. And all these apps, websites, services, and technologies 
point into the direction of making patients the point of care. Wherever I am, I want to get the best customized treatment tailored to my needs, even my genomic background, and even diagnosis, because I'm happy to share data. I know I cannot get diagnosed without losing some of my privacy, but that's, and we can talk about it later, that's a, a, a bet here I'm willing to make, but I, I want to be the point of care. And I'm not saying that hospitals will vanish. I'm not saying that medical professionals will, will not have the role they have today. I'm just saying that roles are shifting and I want to have a real life conversation with my physician while being surrounded by advanced, invisible, seamless technologies. And if I'm at the company and I'm producing something for them that make them or help make them the point of care, because it's not just about producing technologies for patients, it's also producing for medical professionals that help them make patients the point of care. It works in both directions. But that's the general rule I would keep in mind. If I create something, I develop something, I work on something that points into that direction, I must be on the right track. Okay. No, that's really, really interesting. One of the uh, industries that I have the greatest familiarity with is ophthalmology. And there are some devices that people can take home for diagnostics. Um, not many, but we've made so many things so much smaller that there's, it's almost like it's a no brain, no brainer type of situation. You should be able to take more of these ophthalmology um, technologies taken home. Some can actually be done via a computer, which is really amazing. Even some basic um, eye exam type of work. And, and they are doing more telemedicine, but I'm thinking of autorefractors and keratotomers and, and OCT type of instruments and so on and so forth. But what do you think about, like, could, could somebody even drive off, drive up and drop off some instrumentation and the patient, the, the instrumentation guides the patient through using it and it just gets picked up an hour later? Is, is that something that could happen? That, that could and have happened, mm -hmm. but there is a different level of how automation and digital health technologies can have an impact on medical specialties. There are medical specialties where these devices will be amazingly useful. I'm talking about managing cancer, managing chronic condition, diabetes. They can't even live without them. And, and there are specialties where these might have limited impact on, on, on how physicians work with patients. In ophthalmology, I have tested myself such devices, like the one from IQ, uh, QUE. It's an amazing device measuring eye acuity, acuity um, whether you are uh, have colorblindness, it can also determine that. It's mind-blowingly easy to use. You just put your app into a plastic device and it does the testing in about two minutes or so. It's um, unbelievably useful. Not for me. For me, it's easier and it's it feels better to make sure that I see an ophthalmologist like once every two years because I have glasses. But in many regions where there are no or not enough ophthalmologists or none at all, in those regions, this is simply a perfect solution. So I'm not saying that every patient should have a, an armada of technologies at home to make sure they can do an ultrasound examination guided by AI. I had one, by the way, or a, a blood pressure monitor that has ECG. There's one next to me. That's why I'm looking at here. Um, <laughs> ECG, heart rate monitors, oxygen saturation. I'm not saying that all of us should have these devices at home, but those managing their chronic condition for them, it would be amazingly useful. 
to have access to data. They already have an own, but they cannot get access to that because there is no interface for them to, to get those data. And they could share those data with their medical professionals and only meet if it's really necessary to make some adjustments. For them, digital health is the future. In many medical specialties or in many digital health areas, digital health is the future for those regions where there are doctor shortages. And I'm not talking about uh, tribes in Central Africa. I'm talking about like 70% of the world because 5 million healthcare workers are missing from healthcare worldwide, according to WHO. So we will always live in a world with doctor shortages. And it's going to get worse. Be, more of us are diagnosed because medicine is improving, but we can't train as many physicians as we need. Therefore, we will always have doctor shortages. That's what we have to get used to. And with these technologies, even a nurse using five of these gadgets, and I had a video about what should be in the, the future medical black bag, seven technologies, like a portable ultrasound, an ECG, a blood pressure with a heart rate monitor, a few basic stuff that anyone can buy now, even through Amazon. A nurse could check thousands of people uh, in a month, even in a small village. And if there is something wrong or about to go wrong, analyzed and determined by these technologies, they could send the data remotely to a hospital where physicians can, can determine if those patients should travel to the hospital and get checked out in person. That would save a lot of time, effort, money, energy. That would allow patients not to travel to a place, wait in line with other sick patients and get checked out in three minutes, but get checked out in three minutes and only travel and wait if it's absolutely necessary. This is the promise that digital health has for us. And that's where AI comes in as well, because if you have this nurse that is, you know, examining using some of these basic things, if you take the data from several of these diagnostic devices, these simple devices, sometimes it means something. You know, there could be a pattern there and AI could figure that, help to figure that out for the doctor and move people on. Is that correct? I'm a huge fan of AI and my research focuses on the role AI will play in the future of medicine. And I just want to make sure we don't overhype its importance. AI is amazing. Artificial narrow intelligence is amazing at, at performing very well-defined single tasks. So making sure that the ECG reading on my blood pressure combined monitor can determine if I have um, atrial fibrillation, AFib, is something I have zero doubts and an AI can do much better than any physician in the world because it can check 10 million recordings in a morning and a physician cannot even check 1 million in a lifetime. So obviously it will get, it will get better at that but not checking anything else, not looking at the ECG and determining everything else for now. For now, these are very good at well-defined single tests. I have no doubt that over time they will improve, but now we only have artificial narrow intelligence. So the possibility is if governments and individuals are, are willing to uh, continue to move this direction is that there are certain elements of the medical technology industry that could really expand quite a bit. Those have been expanding even yeah. before the pandemic. What has changed is that the adoption rates have become much, much higher. Mm -hmm. It's not a choice, it's a must. Otherwise, you couldn't you couldn't provide or access care at all by not using technologies. So I'm not saying it's amazing, it's not a choice, it's a must. But still, now we I don't have to talk to medical professionals and medical associations about, well, you should be a bit more open to using these technologies. They are because they have no choice. It has helped in that sense. But again, if we don't put the cultural changes next to it, then we will lose something very significant along the line, compassionate care, empathy, trust, real life relationships.
Okay. Now, I know we're getting pretty close to uh, the hour here, so and I know you've got other things to do. Is uh, I, I'm pretty sure we've gone through. Um, uh, yeah, we've gone through everything on my list. Any final comments you'd have for? you know, the listeners and or viewers um, relative to 2021, 2022. I'm smiling because um, I've, I've been saying this before, but now it's more timely than ever that please read and watch science fiction. Not, not just because I'm a huge fan of science fiction, but because science fiction these days help you prepare for whatever is coming next. <laughs> it makes you think about ideas you would never think about before uh, in normal ways. It makes you daydream. It makes you question privacy and, and legal issues. And by doing that, by daydreaming and playing with the what if question, you gradually prepare. And as things are changing and moving quite quickly these days, it makes sense to, to make some more preparation. So please read and watch science fiction. And enjoy it. So I have, to, I, it's, it's I, I have, to, I have to ask you, package. do you watch uh, The Expanse? I did the first season and then uh -huh. I stopped. I, I watched too many things. So I, but the first season was amazing. I, I know yeah. that people cherish the, the fourth season. So I, I guess it, it's something I should continue watching. Yeah, I've, I've, I read all the books and, I've, and we're watching this final season. So, well, listen, thank you so much for spending time. This has really been terrific. I've learned a lot. Hopefully, our viewers and listeners have some different perspectives, different way to look at the future here going forward. And, um, uh, I, th I think it's going to be very helpful to a lot of people. Thank you so much, Ted, and also for having me and for the great questions and everything. So thank you so much for having me. It was all my pleasure. Okay. So listen, I'll let you go. Thanks again. It's thank so you wonderful so much, to meet Ted. you. Have a nice day. Take care. <laughs> nice all to right. meet you. Bye-bye. Bye -bye. What a mind-opening conversation. Here is a message to my med tech colleagues we have an obligation to support science over disinformation. The world needs high vaccination rates. Otherwise, the economies will flounder and we give virus variants a chance to get organized and attack our populations. So spread the word. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. This was a lot of fun, and we have another future-oriented podcast coming up next week. If you like this podcast, please rate it, recommend it, and or subscribe. Now, make a difference and go win your week. 